Some stories were never supposed to be told. Stories that exist in the twilight between science and the supernatural, between history and horror. Stories that speak of terrifying things. Stories that you want to hear. Stories that you need to hear. Stories that will sink their teeth in and never let you go. My name is Mike Brown, and this is Pleasing Terrors. Episode 23, Sins of the Father. He was lost in the wilderness, having strayed from the right path. In the distance, he could see the peak of a small mountain, and he began to make his way toward it in the hope that he could find a way out. But monsters blocked his intended path. There were three of them, a wolf, a lion, and a leopard. Each of the three represented a sin. The wolf symbolized lust, the leopard symbolized fraud, and the lion symbolized violence. These three monsters, these three sins, turned him away from his goal and forced him back into the darkness of the wilderness. This scene comprises the first canto of Dante Alighieri's Inferno, which is the first part of his 14th century epic poem, The Divine Comedy, which he began writing in 1308 and finished in 1320. Dante, serving the dual role of author and protagonist, is met by Virgil, author of the Aeneid, which tells the story of the hero Aeneas's journey from the Trojan Wars to Italy. It is the story of the origin of what will ultimately become an empire. Dante has been chosen to journey into the underworld and witness the fate of those who have failed to repent for their sins. As they pass through the gateway into the darkness beyond, they hear the screams of the tormented issuing from the vestibule of hell. Above the gateway is written the inscription, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. However, not all doorways to hell are so plainly labeled, and not all tormented souls are so easily heard. The Harbor House Inn sits on a bluff overlooking the Sampit River in Georgetown, South Carolina. Once known as the Harriet House, it was built in 1765 by a wealthy merchant who owned the warehouse across the street. Georgetown residents, as well as visitors staying in the inn, have on some nights described seeing a woman lingering in front of the house. Her clothing has been described as odd, seeming better suited to an earlier period of history. In historic locations, it is not uncommon to see someone in period costume, but this woman is different. Her presence is unsettling, and it is obvious that she is out of place, that she shouldn't be there. She appears most often at night, materializing out of the darkness. She walks from the house toward the river, and those who follow her 
have found that if they look away, even for a moment, she is gone. There is an old story about a young woman who once lived in the house who was in love with a sea captain. Her father forbade the couple from seeing each other and arranged for the captain's ship to be anchored off the coast. They communicated by lantern light each night, sending messages to each other. One day he sailed away and never returned. She stayed in the house waiting for him until she died. Every night she would put the lantern in the window. On the night of her death, she put the lantern in the window for the final time. Her body was found the next morning. The local folklore suggests that her spirit waits for him still, walking down to the river at night and looking for the light of his lantern. There is another story that suggests that the woman who haunts the Harriet house is someone who suffered a far more gruesome fate. These stories say that she spent her last night ashore at the house before boarding a ship called the Patriot, which was wrecked on the coast in 1813. There were no survivors found on board, nor did any bodies wash ashore. The passengers and crew of the ship had simply vanished. History has blamed the loss of the ship on a storm, but local legend offers another explanation, one which, if true, suggests that those aboard the Patriot would have gladly chosen to face a storm instead of the doom that awaited them off the coast of the Carolinas. But the spirit that haunts the Harriet House is just the first fragment of a larger story. There are several homes along Jane Street in New York City's Greenwich Village that are said to be haunted by the same ghost. In his book, Famous Ghosts, paranormal researcher Hans Holzer describes visiting one of the houses with a medium named Mrs. Myers. At the time, it was the residence of a Miss Carsevina. She was kept awake at night by the sound of footsteps and had seen doors open and close by themselves. She had seen something else once, a blurred shape in a dimly lit room. One night she was shocked when a man in 1700s clothing walked into her bedroom and then turned and walked out again. She followed him into the hall, but he was gone. The medium, Mrs. Myers, said that the house was home to a number of spirits, but she could feel his presence in particular. She had noticed his shadow upon first entering the house. There was a cold spot in the center of a room on the first floor. As she explored the house, her mind flooded with images. A flag-draped coffin, a man's lungs filling with liquid. There was a wound in his side. Then she saw him. She recognized him. She had seen his face many times. Mrs. Myers would not be the last to see him, nor would he remain in only one house on Jane Street. In 2016, Betty Cooper, a correspondent for the New Yorker Radio Hour, received an email from a man named David Siegel, who was living at 71 Jane Street. 
he was house-sitting for a friend and was becoming alarmed at the strange things that were happening in the home. Doors started closing by themselves, and David and his husband had begun to hear strange noises. The sounds centered on the chimney and were so loud that the couple had to sleep with earplugs. When asked about the noises, the owners were dismissive, but David was adamant that something strange was going on. Soon the noises were being heard in other parts of the house. On one occasion, a babysitter mentioned that the upstairs tenants were really loud. David knew that there were no upstairs tenants. Finally, the home's owner admitted to the possibility that the house was haunted. She said that when she bought the home in 1994, the previous owner had told her about an incident in which she had seen a man in the kitchen, a slim man wearing a silk shirt and knee-length trousers. He was also wearing a powdered wig. She told Joe that she knew who he was. She had recognized him. She told him that 71 Jane Street was located near the house where he died. However, like the haunting of the grounds of the Harriet House, this too is but a fragment of a larger story. Located at 65 Jumel Terrace in Roger Morris Park in the Washington Heights neighborhood of Manhattan, the Morris Jumel Mansion is the oldest house in the city. It was built by a British Colonel, Roger Morris, in 1765, and once presided over a 130-acre farm. Its triangular portico and classical columns frame the entrance to a house that is a beautiful example of 19th-century opulence. It is a place whose interior is filled with yellow and green patterned wallpaper, centuries-old antiques, and storied portraits. It has a history every bit as impressive as its appearance. It briefly served as George Washington's headquarters as the American Revolution raged around New York and after American forces retreated, it served as the headquarters for the British Army. In 1790, President Washington held his first cabinet meeting there. In 1810, the house was purchased by a wealthy French merchant named Stephen Jumel. Many years later, Jumel suffered a bizarre accident. In 1832, he fell off a horse and landed on a pitchfork. He was carried into the house and his wound was bandaged. When a doctor returned to check on him the next day, he was dead. It was then that the house passed into the possession of his wife, Eliza. Eliza Jumel lived her entire life in the calm at the center of a storm of rumor and controversy. She was said to be the illegitimate daughter of a Rhode Island prostitute, though she apparently claimed to be the daughter of George Washington. She traveled to France, where she met Stephen Jumel, and according to gossip, tricked him into marrying her by claiming to be terminally ill and asking that he make her his wife before she died. After the wedding, she miraculously recovered. Gossip, which over time has been transmuted into folklore, claims that she was responsible for her husband's death, that as he lay in bed, his wounds tightly bound, that she loosened the bandages 
causing him to bleed to death. She would marry again in 1833. When she died in 1865 at the age of 91, she was the wealthiest woman in New York. The house would go through several more owners before it was purchased by the city in 1903 and turned into a museum. The house has a long history of being haunted. Even in Jumel's time, her adopted daughter would not stay there alone. The ghost of a Hessian soldier who is thought to have fallen down a staircase in the house to his death has been seen as far back as the 1800s. The house appears to be crowded with spirits, not the least of which is Eliza Jumel, an elderly woman in a purple dress seen wandering inside the house. If the rumors about her husband's death are true, then the house which in life seemed an opulent heaven in death has become an inescapable prison. In 1964, a group of schoolchildren was waiting to be given a tour of the house. They were being noisy, and a woman in period clothing came out and said, My husband is very ill. You have to keep quiet. When the docents were told about the encounter, they said there was no one in the house. During the tour, when the children saw the portrait of Jumel hanging on the wall, they pointed and said, that's her, that's her. There was one part of the house that some of the children refused to enter, saying, no, can't go down that hall. Bad things down there. There was also said to be another presence. At times, an unnatural coldness would seep into certain rooms in the house. Hans Holzer conducted two seances there in 1965. It was during the second one that he claimed to have contacted the spirit of Stephen Jamel, who told him that he had been murdered and that it was Eliza who loosened the bandages causing him to bleed to death. Over the years, the house has attracted attention in ways that range from the merely amusing to the truly frightening. There was a man who wanted to sleep there so that he could feel the vibrations of the house. From time to time, Slaughtered chickens were left on the lawn. Someone even tried to burn the house down, supposedly to get rid of the spirits inside. On April 16, 2016, a paranormal investigation was conducted of the Morris Jumel Mansion by Marie Carter, a tour guide and paranormal investigator with New York's Burroughs of the Dead Walking Tour Company. Carter and her fellow investigators began their examination of the house in the dining room. They stood there in the dark, watching the lights of the EMF meter flicker. Even though they were the only ones in the house, they could hear the sound of footsteps on the floor above them. All of their various devices seemed to come alive for a moment before going quiet again. They moved on to the second floor landing where the lights on the meters again began to flicker near the George Washington room. But the greatest activity from the sensors was in the room that once belonged to Eliza Jumel's second husband, in particular, near a chair that was known to have belonged to him. As is often the case with such investigations, 
the results were inconclusive. There did indeed seem to be something there, but on this occasion it remained elusive. The investigators had heard the footsteps, and there had been something in that chair, something that had made their equipment go crazy, even if only for a moment. There is another spirit said to haunt the Morris Jumel mansion. In the inferno, Virgil led Dante through the vestibule and down through the circles of hell. They saw Limbo with its castle of seven gates, and the serpent and the ruined slope of the second circle lust. They passed through the freezing rain of gluttony, and there encountered the three-headed dog Cerberus. In the fifth circle of wrath, they crossed the river Styx, its waters churning with raging humanity. They traveled past flaming tombs and Phlegathon, a river of boiling blood and fire, until they reached the Eighth Circle, an amphitheater of the damned, specifically those guilty of fraud. They crossed over a stone bridge until they reached the Well of Malbolgia. Dorothy Sayer, a prolific writer who authored a translation of the Inferno, described the well as the image of the city in corruption. Antaeus, a giant who once built a temple to his father Poseidon out of the skulls of the men that he had killed, stood on the ninth level, but the upper part of his body rose to the eighth. He took Dante and Virgil in his hand and lowered them into the final circle of hell. The well of Malbolgia, symbol of corruption, was the entrance to Cossetus, the circle of treachery. The spirits that are said to haunt the Harriet House and the various homes of Jane Street in New York are important parts of the story. The dark presence that dwells deep in the shadows of the Morris Jumel mansion is the most important part, but it is not the first. This story begins with a woman's body floating in the darkness, and the first fragment, the one that truly begins the story, is to be found in the most unlikely of places. Next to a cash register in the men's department of a fashionable clothing store. Cause is located at 129 Spring Street in New York's Soho neighborhood. The building was once the home of a restaurant called the Manhattan Bistro. Curb New York once ranked the restaurant among the 13 most haunted places in the city. Things would move in ways that couldn't be explained. Bottles would fly off the shelves. Dishes would fly off tables. Employees spoke of seeing a strange woman in the basement, a woman who, like the spirit of the Harriet House, would be there one moment and then gone the next. It all started after something was discovered in the basement of the building while it was being renovated in 1980. What was once the basement of the Manhattan Bistro is now the men's department of Cots. And there next to one of the registers is a large brick cylinder. To the casual observer, it could not appear to be more benign. But it is the well of Malbolgia made real. It was consecrated with murder, 
and its only offering was the poison of corruption. On January 2nd, 1800, a body was found inside this well. On the night of December 22nd, 1799, a 21-year-old woman named Julielma Sands left the boarding house where she lived to meet her lover, a young man named Levi Weeks. They met at this well, intending to elope. She was not seen alive again. Her body was found 11 days later, floating in the depths of the well. Her family believed that she was pregnant and that Weeks was the father. They put her body on display outside of the boarding house where they lived in order to draw attention to the case. The spectacle had the desired effect and soon newspaper headlines screamed for justice. Levi Weeks became the subject of the first sensational murder trial in the history of the United States. His brother Ezra Weeks was a wealthy man and hired the best legal minds in the city to defend him. He was represented by the first legal dream team. They were men of great standing in the community, and having been paid to do so, wielded their influence on their client's behalf. The judge essentially told the jury not to convict. By some accounts, they returned a not guilty verdict in under five minutes. According to New York folklore, as the defense team left the courthouse, they were confronted by Mrs. Ring, who, along with her husband, managed the boarding house where Julielma Sands and Levi Weeks had lived. She told one of the attorneys, If thee die a natural death, I shall think there is no justice in heaven. For two of the attorneys, this would be the last time they would work together. The seeds had already been sown that would doom them both. They were Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. The well in which the body of Julielma Sands was found was owned by the Manhattan Company which was founded by Aaron Burr in 1799. The company was supposed to provide clean water to the city of New York. Burr asked for Alexander Hamilton's help in establishing the company and negotiated with him over the specifics, including the political makeup of the board that would manage it. However, Burr tricked Hamilton and arranged to have a board that was exclusively loyal to the Democratic-Republican Party leaving Hamilton's Federalist Party out in the cold. The company raised $2 million, of which only $100,000 was used for the waterworks, while the rest was used to start a bank that would become a slush fund for the Democratic-Republican Party. Alexander Hamilton was among the most prominent of the Founding Fathers, having served as an aide to George Washington during the war. He was very active in promoting the U.S. Constitution. He was the country's first Secretary of the Treasury and founded the nation's financial system. Aaron Burr served as an officer in the Continental Army during the American Revolution. He was a good officer and served heroically until his health forced him to leave military service. After the war, he became a lawyer in New York City and quickly moved into politics. He served in the New York State Assembly before being appointed Attorney General for the State of New York. In 1791, he was elected by the state legislature to the U.S. Senate 
defeating Philip Schuller, father-in-law of Alexander Hamilton. In the election of 1800, Thomas Jefferson ran for president on the Democratic-Republican ticket, and Burr joined the ticket as the vice presidential candidate. The establishment of the Manhattan Company was to prove crucial to Burr's efforts by providing the money and influence needed to win over New York's electors for the Democratic-Republican Party and to deny them to Hamilton's Federalist Party. As a result, Thomas Jefferson won New York, but surprisingly, he and Burr tied at 73 electors each for the presidency. Even though Burr was running for vice president, whoever got the most electors would win the presidency. The election was turned over to the House of Representatives to decide the winner. Burr plotted with the Federalists to get the votes, but Hamilton used his influence to ensure that Jefferson was elected. The corruption spawned by the well in which Julielma Sands was found would help determine the outcome of that election in 1800, and it would mark the beginning of an escalating path of conflict that would end on a field in New Jersey where the lives of both men would be ruined. The well of Malbolge seemed to promise an ascent to the heights of power, but the hand of Antaeus could only reach so far before it would again sink into darkness. Through all of his political ups and downs, Burr's most ardent supporter and co-conspirator was his daughter, Theodosia. She was born in 1783 in Albany, New York. Her mother died when she was 11, and her father began to supervise her education. Burr recognized that women were the intellectual equals of men and ensured that Theodosia's education was extensive. He kept a portrait of Mary Wollstonecraft, philosopher and author of the 1792 book A Vindication of the Rights of Women, above the mantle. Throughout her life, Theodosia would correspond frequently with her father. Their letters number in the thousands. In 1801, she married Joseph Alston, a man she barely knew, who was the scion of one of the wealthiest planter families in South Carolina. Many of her contemporaries gossiped that the marriage was at the insistence of her father, so that he might gain access to Alston's wealth. Theodosia took charge of her new household, and her husband acquiesced to her in most matters, including loaning her father large sums of money. The next year, they had a son, Aaron Burr Alston. Burr's endorsement and likely encouragement of this marriage was a betrayal to both his daughter and himself. He had raised Theodosia to be an independent, educated woman, a free thinker, Burr was an early advocate of equal rights for women, and yet he used his daughter as a pawn and consigned her to a society that had an entirely different view of the role of women. Burr was also opposed to the institution of slavery, and the marriage of his daughter to Alston, one of the biggest slave owners in South Carolina, betrayed that objection. There was a part of Aaron Burr that was remarkably enlightened for his time. He believed in income equality. He wanted to end slavery and elevate the role of women in society. 
but his lust for power cast those brighter aspects of his persona into shadow. He craved power and had proven willing to resort to fraud to achieve it. If backed into a corner, he would also demonstrate a willingness to use violence, and that would prove to be his undoing. All of the scheming begun in 1799 would end in 1807 with Burr on the run, involved in a failed plot to start his own country and ultimately to take the White House by force. Burr had traveled west, claiming to be taking possession of a 40,000-acre tract of land that he intended to farm. However, this was a subterfuge to conceal his involvement in a conspiracy to start his own country in the west, a country over which he would rule. He told Spanish officials that he ultimately intended to take control of the United States. Burr envisioned a complicated plan in which he would organize an army and help Mexico overthrow Spanish authority in the southwest. He would seize the territory for himself, and once he had consolidated his power, he intended to wage war on the United States, possibly with the help of the British. His daughter Theodosia and her husband are thought to have supported her father's plans. Burr was betrayed by one of his conspirators, and the plan was revealed. President Thomas Jefferson ordered him arrested, and in August of 1807, his trial began. The government's case soon fell apart, as crucial incriminating letters were shown to be copies and not the original documents. Chief Justice John Marshall insisted on a high bar for proof of treason, and Burr was acquitted. But in the court of public opinion, he was a traitor, a man who had once been a hero of the Revolutionary War, a senator, a vice president, had betrayed his country. The people recognized that, even if the courts could not. But he was desperate. Three years earlier, he had seen his political career, motivated by a lust for power and propelled forward by a talent for fraud, disappear in a moment of violence. It vanished in a puff of smoke. During his term as vice president, Burr realized that President Thomas Jefferson would drop him from the ticket in the 1804 election, and so he decided to run for governor of New York. Thanks in part to the efforts of Alexander Hamilton, he lost. In April of 1804, a letter was published in the Albany Register. It was from Dr. Charles D. Cooper to Hamilton's father-in-law, Philip Schuler. In the letter, Cooper mentioned that Hamilton referred to Burr as a dangerous man and one who ought not to be trusted with the reins of government. He also hinted at worse insults, mentioning a still worse opinion which General Hamilton has expressed of Mr. Burr. Burr sent Hamilton a letter demanding an explanation and later, an apology. Hamilton declined to provide either. Eventually, Burr issued a formal challenge to fight a duel. Both men had been involved in duels in the past. For men of prominence, especially given the fact that they were illegal, they tended to be surprisingly bloodless. Two men would meet, they would fire their pistols into the ground, and then everyone would go home. 
Perversely, the purpose of a duel was not to kill one's opponent, but to prove that you had the courage to risk getting shot. It was political theater. Hamilton had been engaged in ten such duels in the past. However, there is evidence that Hamilton went to the field in Weehawken, New Jersey, intending to die. Five years earlier, his oldest son, Philip, had been caught up in one of his father's political quarrels and had fought a duel and been killed. His death had devastated Hamilton's family, causing his daughter to suffer a mental breakdown from which she never recovered. And in the years since, Hamilton had struggled with a growing depression. When he faced Aaron Burr on the morning of July 11, 1804, he was standing on the same field where his son had been shot. He and Burr were holding the same pistols used in that duel. Hamilton fired first, missing on purpose, but Burr fired to kill, striking Hamilton in the abdomen. He was carried to a house on Jane Street in New York City, where he later died. Burr was charged with murder in both New York and New Jersey, and he fled to his son-in-law's house in South Carolina. Eventually, the Fuhrer died down, and charges were dropped. But Burr's political career, his ascension to power, was over. Hamilton had defeated him once and for all. In 1808, he left the United States for England and resumed his plotting to conquer Mexico, but to no avail. He was an outcast now, a pariah. He would remain abroad until 1812, when he finally returned to New York. Others, however, would pay a higher price for their involvement in his schemes. In 1812, Joseph Alston was elected governor of South Carolina. That same year, the Alston's son, Aaron Burr Alston, died of malaria at the age of 10. Theodosia, who had been suffering physical ailments for many years, fell into a deep depression. In December of 1812, she recovered enough to travel to New York to see her father. On December 31, 1812, after a brief stay at the Harriet House in Georgetown, she boarded the schooner Patriot for the trip to New York. Due to his obligations as governor, her husband was unable to join her. The Patriot was lost at sea. Some accounts suggest the ship was destroyed by a storm, while others insist that it was captured by pirates. In later years, several men would confess to having been part of the pirate crew that seized the Patriot. They would recall a woman believed to be Theodosia, who was made to walk a plank and jump into the sea. In her final moments, she spoke of her father. She was last seen staring up at the pirates as she treaded water before she sank beneath the surface resigned to her fate, her body adrift in the darkness. From the hand of Antaeus, Dante and Virgil observed Cossetus, the ninth circle of hell. It was a lake of ice divided into four concentric circles called rounds. In each round were frozen the bodies of those guilty of the sin of treachery, locked in eternal torment never able to rest, never able to find peace. 
The first round was Cana, reserved for those who betrayed family. The second round was Antonora, containing those who betrayed their country. The third round was Ptolemaea, the home of those who betrayed a guest. And the final round was Judeca, the doom of those who betrayed their lord or benefactor. In less than a decade of what would be a long life, Aaron Burr earned a place in each of these rounds. He earned his place in Cana by betraying his daughter Theodosia. He raised her to be a free thinker, the equal to any man, and to abhor slavery. He made her a pawn in exchange for money, approving of her marriage to one of the biggest slave owners in South Carolina. When he saw that he could rise no further in the government of the United States, he earned his place in Antonora by betraying the country he had once fought heroically to create, and which he for a time had ably served. The depth of his betrayal, undiminished by the absurdity of his scheme. He earned his place in Ptolemaea, when in defiance of ritual and tradition, he murdered Alexander Hamilton in a duel in Weehawken, New Jersey. Burr, a man who aspired to reach the pinnacle of power, betrayed himself, earning his place in Judeca. Every betrayal stripped away a part of Burr's soul, whittling down a man who could have been a great man until all that was left was a mere shadow. After his trial, Burr left the United States and went into exile in Europe. He tried to organize a military expedition to conquer Mexico while in England and was kicked out of the country. He went to France seeking help from Napoleon, but was turned down. Completely broke, he returned to the United States in 1811. He started using the name Edwards and went back to practicing law in New York. He was despised by almost all who knew him and he was the subject of ridicule when he was recognized on the street. He was forced to take cases that were turned down by other attorneys, and was deeply in debt and often hounded by creditors. He had so little that on one occasion when his umbrella bumped a pane of glass, he experienced a moment of terror that had he broken it, he would have been hauled off to debtor's prison because of his inability to pay for it. He was lost in the wilderness, having strayed from the right path. He had tried to climb a mountain, only to find monsters blocked his intended path. Three of them, a wolf, a lion, and a leopard. Lust, fraud, and violence. They turned him away from his goal and forced him back into the darkness of the wilderness. Those who knew him as he lived in poverty spoke of how he would pawn what few valuables he still possessed in order to buy a hungry family food. He seemed to have discovered kindness and empathy. He seemed to have learned to place the needs of others before his own. We are left to wonder had he at last repented his sins and found his way back to the right path. The answer is no. In his old age, he began courting Eliza Jumel. She rebuffed him on numerous occasions, but eventually he wore her down. They were married in the front parlor of her mansion in 1833. Almost immediately, Burr started spending large sums of her money. She kicked him out after four months. 
Their divorce was finalized on the day of his death in 1836. Her divorce attorney was the son of Alexander Hamilton. Dante and Virgil escaped the inferno. They were, after all, only observers. Aaron Burr lived a long life and spent many years living with the consequences of his actions, seeing all of his dreams turn to ashes, seeing the death of his daughter and grandchild. He died at the age of 80, but some believe that he continues to pay the price for his sins still. Alexander Hamilton and Theodosia Burr Alston also paid a price for the sins of Aaron Burr. They paid with their lives. If the ghost stories surrounding the Harriet House in Georgetown, South Carolina, and Jane Street in Manhattan are to be believed, they continue to pay for them still. The ghost of Aaron Burr is believed to haunt the Morris Jumel Mansion to this day. The area of strongest activity seems to center on the room that was once his bedroom. The chair that was the focus of activity during the 2016 investigation of the house was his chair. If indeed the house is haunted, he is trapped not in a literal hell, but a very personal one. Not a hell of fire and brimstone, but one cold as ice. Throughout his life, Burr made choices that he thought would enable him to climb the mountain to the peak of power. But his way was blocked by three monsters, the wolf, the leopard, and the lion. The three sins, lust, fraud, and violence. Unlike Dante, he did not flee from these monsters. He never even knew they were there. They drove him back nonetheless, through a door whose inscription he failed to read, down a path of sorrows and on to his fate, until firmly in the grip of Antaeus, he was carried into the cold darkness. Frozen, not in ice, but in time and place. Another tormented soul, awaiting the arrival of the occasional visitor. This episode of the Pleasing Terrors podcast was written and performed by Mike Brown. It was edited, mixed, and produced by Michael Dalbello at Charleston Sound Studio. For more information on Pleasing Tears, please visit us on Facebook and Twitter at pleasingtears.com. Thank you for listening.